You're listening to Ferma- the Fermented Food Podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this week we're talking about exploding cans of Sir Stroming, that herring that smells a little funny but tastes oh so good, as well as a little bit of questioning of arsenic in uh, Nuka Pot rice bran fermentation. All this and more in episode 64. So I had a, a hankering for some fish tonight. Why is that? Well, it was, uh, it's from an article that I was reading, which seems a little weird because I, I mean, I ended up just eating some, some salmon, but I, and I'm not, I don't actually eat that much fish, but after reading about last week, last Thursday, there was an explosion of, uh, Schurstroming. Oh no. <laughs> Something that seems like it'd be weird and it would be bad. And that I, especially since I haven't had Schurstroming and for anyone that doesn't remember Schurstroming is the, the canned pickled slash fermented herring from Sweden that is either a love or hate kind of thing. It's hard to get in the United States, so I haven't tried it. But it's one of those things where it's like the the exploding cans of it just made me really want to try it. Like I was in the mood, like if I had Sir Stroming in front of me, I would have definitely tried it. No question. Even though I know I tried anyway, but like no question, I would have tried it. Do exploding cans of Sir Stroming uh, make you want to eat it? No, I don't think that it sounds that appetizing just because they exploded. Um, and in the article, it doesn't really say what, why it, it exploded, right? It, it, was it just because the cans were, were bulging and that that's all it really said. But how did they create the fire that they talk about in the article? Oh, I think you're, uh, mixing the two up. The fire happened and then the explosions of the cans. So, oh, that makes more sense. Okay. Yes. So the, the, the fire may have, at least I kind of jumped around to a, a couple different, uh, resources for for this story uh but it was possibly a propane um fire or started by propane tanks that fell or something happened but either way there was a fire and a thousand tins of surstroming were inside of this fish hut some like place some kind of somewhat small building but not not too small i mean i mean a thousand tins doesn't sound like that much like a thousand cans doesn't sound that much but it was for sale it was they were fermenting they were going to be for sale this summer um so in that sense it's very sad um that you know that's that uh, hopefully they had insurance for it uh i don't know how all that stuff works out in sweden especially around sir stroming but either way um hopefully that was covered because then otherwise it's just kind of like an awkward weird thing it's like it uh one person said the oh the warehouse owner hans eric Unglin is how I would say that, even though I totally butchered that. They said it smelled like someone was frying fermented herring. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that's what it what it is. It's fermented herring. But I mean, I can the the frying part is kind of funny. Doesn't that sound good though? I mean, it just like think of the, like something so foul and funky and strong smelling. Uh, the idea of frying it almost makes it sound even better. Or, or or sound more palatable maybe to someone that doesn't necessarily like it or is grown up. Maybe maybe more palatable, palatable, not necessarily making me want to eat it more. So I think it maybe be something that's more approachable. I okay, so yeah, yeah, that's was, that's that's fair to say because I mean I think generally it's eaten raw, at least from videos that I've seen of picnics and otherwise in in Sweden, it's that it's eaten raw and and not all Swedes like 
they're Sir Stromming. And it's just one of those things where someone likes it or they don't. And it's, I forget North or South, maybe more of the Northern regions that are uh, more traditionally liking to that. I mean, I think it's something that if you uh, indoctrinate a kid with it at an early enough age, Although that doesn't make sense either. Like, I don't know when, how do you get someone, uh, I guess it'd just be all the cultural aspects surrounding it, getting family together, other things like that. But with something that foul, um, maybe kids like it, but I could also see it as being something that kids don't really like. And it's something that adults would grow uh, a liking for later, like coffee or anything else that's kind of weird for kids. Yeah, I bet it's more of a, you kind of, it's a taste that you acquire and you grow into it um, more so than, but I'm sure there's lots of people and children who love it when, you know, from an early age. So I think it just, a vast majority of people probably grow into liking it more so than they grow, you know, they instantly like it the first time they taste it. I feel like it's going to be one of those things that is uh, almost become, I don't know if mythological is the right term for it, but like it legendary or some, it's like, it's, it's so mystical maybe is a, it, like I, since I can't get access to it, at least not easily. And I haven't been to Sweden, which would probably be the easiest way to, to get access to it. It's going by the time because I, I'm just going to assume that I'll be able to enjoy some or eat some Sir Stroming before I die. You know, I just don't know when it's going to be. And if it's a long way coming, then I don't know. I feel like I'm just naturally going to like it because I've been waiting for so long. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope you get the chance to eat it and that you do like it. Um but uh, to go back to the the fire that happened, it said that this this fire lasted for about six hours. And if you look at some of the pictures on um, the BBC News article that you had sent me um, earlier, it looks like it was a pretty devastating fire. A lot of a lot of the buildings around are demolished. Well, and that might just be the 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 way the, the that fishing area looks too. Like I they uh, from the uh, one of the other articles I looked at it did look like they were able to like some of the other houses were smoking but it was that they were able to maintain it a little bit um so it didn't actually go too much outside of it they might have been maybe that warehouse was multiple buildings um i don't have that image in front of me at the moment but i'm i as far as i understood it was just that building and oh and also one important thing is that there were four people sleeping upstairs uh in that warehouse but they uh did get out safely so no one was injured uh at least Nothing more than nasal passage injuries. <laughs> what do you think that four of them were? I mean, they were sleeping, but how do you think they responded or reacted once they were rudely awakened by the fire or the smell? Well, that's a question. I mean, if they're in a, I don't know if it's like, I mean, I'm assuming it's uh, fit more than just Sir Stroming. If it's just Sir Stroming that's in this warehouse, then my guess is that they're probably somewhat accustomed to the smell. So maybe it, the smell wouldn't even be that bad. Maybe they were even having uh, great dreams about the smell and just like it was bleeding into their dreams. But I, as far as I understood too, it was the, the firefighters uh, had to shout to them to get out and wake up and whatnot. So it doesn't even necessarily seem like they woke up right away. Um, Hmm. Which seems kind of weird because these things were, like you said, it was six hours of explosion, exploding cans. Like it wasn't just they they all exploded at the same time. It's like over six hours they were popping like I would assume kind of like popcorn maybe. Um, one even shot out of the out of the roof and another shot by a neighbor's house. Um, because I, I guess I don't really understand like those images. Yeah, like was it – it seems like it's like a little fisher community. And so what is some being translated as warehouse is probably more like a little – place and it seems like people lived there too so um 
but it was for commercial selling of these cans. So I, I, I don't really know the structure of this kind of thing, but either way, yeah, it seemed like a little community there, but it was interesting. See, like the idea of having these things exploding, um, would definitely wake me up. And especially since those people were sleeping, it must've been in the middle of the night. Oh, I would think so. I think it said in the news article that it was early in the morning when it happened. Um, and that's all it, it really said, but that, I mean, that early in the morning could have been 3 a.m. Yeah. That's 2 a.m. That's, that's a way to wake up. That's a party party for the olfactory <laughs> senses. Well, I mean, that's such a travesty that all that fermented food got was destroyed. And I, I mean, I just feel bad that whoever made that, they, I mean, it just takes so much time and effort and to make fermented foods and to wait for it and um, the anticipation of eating fermented foods uh, and to have it, ha- to have it disappear like that. That's, that's devastating. I I feel bad for all of those people. Who were looking forward to it. Yeah. All the customers, all the people, the hard workers. I mean, it's like I was saying, it kind of seems like a small fishery. So it was probably just a small family business. So yeah, that's, that's uh, very sad. And again, hopefully they had some kind of insurance, but uh, um, uh, assuming that they had some kind of insurance, it is still kind of uh, a little interesting, not the same kind of fire that I think would happen all the time. And at least it was like, there's all kinds of explosions that can happen in fires, but at least this one was almost maybe comical for as comical as fires can almost be, but not really like it's uh, destruction. Isn't funny, but at least it was smelly and interesting. Yeah. It's a little different than your common, your common factory fire. Um, so, well, something else that's a little different than a uh, common something or other would be a Kickstarter that I just recently saw on, um, Algae meets breweries of a CO2 digester of sorts. Would that be a, a good way to call that? Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like um, just a new type of roof technology where the brewery will pump their CO2 that's made by the yeast when they're brewing their beer um, and use it to to grow algae, which makes a certain type of omega-3 fatty acid. That's how I understood it, right? Yeah. Now, let this, I guess just to step back too, it's like the uh, the concept behind this Kickstarter project is that uh, that even if breweries may be doing all kinds of things for the environment, the one thing that they still are outgassing is CO2. And CO2 being uh, one of the, the major greenhouse gases or the major greenhouse gas that's uh, emitted by humans in this human made process of beer brewing beer, there's a decent amount of CO2. Is that safe to say? Like, what's your experience? Like, do you know of any measurements in general? Like, is there a lot that's being put out into the environment in a beer brewery? Yeah. I mean, people use CO2 to measure, um, yeast growth. Uh, the higher the CO2 that is produced, um, it's just understood that the higher the, biomass or the amount of yeast that is being replicated and made. Um, so they produce a lot, a lot of CO2. Um, just think of one of the, if one of those really great giant, huge fermentation tanks that are at a brewery. If they have just one of those itself is going to produce a lot of CO2. Now, if you have a lot of those fermentation tanks, you're going to be producing a lot of CO2, um, just by default. So I think it's a, it's a pretty ingenious, new way of harnessing something that is 
a waste, a considered a waste, and using it for something good that will benefit us besides all the tasty beer. Yeah, and while it's a waste, I don't unless you know otherwise, I would just assume that it's not necessarily considered a waste product in the sense of something that needs to be managed, at least not yet. And this would be a way to then start to bring awareness towards, hey, this is something that should be managed. Right, right. It's a different kind of waste. It's um, a negative type of waste. It's a greenhouse gas. But um, there's... I don't, I don't really know of any any other place that's harnessing or capturing that CO2 and using it for other stuff, but I could be wrong. And so what are they making? Or, They're making uh, omega-3 oils, right? Yeah, that's what it sounded like. Um, and they're, But they're using a special type of algae. And I didn't really get too deep into the Kickstarter. Um, and I don't know if it's in the Kickstarter, but um, the, the, the strain of algae that's being used to make this omega-3 oil. I would like to know kind of more about that and how they are creating that through just CO2. Like what, what's that process all about? Yeah, it would be interesting. It seems like that's the major thing. It's just an algae that digests CO2 at, at and is able to convert it. I mean, is this algae a proprietary hybrid of some sort? I'm not sure. The strain that they're using or that's in the Kickstarter that they mention is called Nanoclophorus. I don't know much about algae, but um, I'm going to assume that's the name of the the strain. It says so right there. But how are they? Are they just using CO2 and that allows it to grow or do they need to feed it something else? Some sort of like, um, I mean, the CO2, they're probably using the carbon from the carbon dioxide to feed it. But what what else does it need? Does it need anything else? And how are they going to – are they just using the one brewery's rooftop to harvest all of it? And just kind of those side of – those logistics, um, you know, that's kind of a, um, a deeper thought maybe of just like, hey, we're going to capture all the CO2 and use this algae to make omega-3s, fatty acids like I'd kind of like to know that process more. Yeah, it does seem uh, that, I mean, again, we just kind of just came onto this right before the show today. And uh, to also mention, it is a Kickstarter. It was successfully funded a few days ago, so it's no longer accepting uh, pledges, but it is uh, it has been successful. So something will come of this. So we'll definitely keep track of it and see where it goes. Uh, but there are some uh, beautiful green images uh, I, I like the green aspect to, you know, this um, looks like a lot of algae there and it looks like good algae, not the kind of algae I see at lakes, some big lakes here in Wisconsin, um, like agricultural runoff kind of things. But this looks really pretty. I mean, it's, it's nice and green. And, and I say that we follow up on this in the future just to see where it goes and to see if this becomes a thing. And maybe there will be, maybe this will inspire other ways of using this waste product. Yeah, and I think it's a really creative way of um I mean we we as humans create a lot of waste and um to come up with a different way of using it instead of just recycling it in the traditional way that we think of recycling um plastic and cardboard. I think it's I think it's pretty neat that humans are thinking out a little outside of the uh box to um use other sources of of waste and use use and harness that energy. Well, and I just noticed too, like you should be supportive of this because I see the people that are under the R team section and none of them have their favorite beer is, uh, does not appear. None of them appear to have a sour beer as their favorite beer. So you'll, you'll get along with all of them. It seems. Yeah, I bet I would. (laughs) 
Uh, but beer is kind of a universal, universal thing. I mean, as long as it's good beer, I think everyone's happy. Um, but uh, really cool idea. Hopefully, um, we see more of these things pop up. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe maybe you might know the answer to this. But it just when I was looking through this Kickstarter, it made me think of like, are there any other industrial places besides breweries or or wineries um, that could capture the CO2? And do the same type of thing. With others, like, say, food or... Like other food factories. Can you think of anything? Well, that's an interesting thing. Like, I wonder, like, I'm assuming that that some of the most CO2 comes from alcohol fermentation. But at the same time, like, is there a way to capture some of this otherwise? I mean, I would think even sauerkraut fermentation has a decent amount of CO2 byproduct. And they're in sealed stainless steel vats a lot of times for, like, the major producers that it would just seem that there'd be a way that that could be captured. But I don't know at what, like what levels there are and are they, are, are there enough to do something and replicate it like this? I don't, I don't really know. It's, it's interesting stuff that we will hopefully continue seeing more of it because it makes me think of like how to use cheese brine and how to use these waste products. But those are ones that again, make sense. Like they, they are waste products that have to be managed somehow, but things that just go into the air that aren't considered a technically a pollutant are oftentimes forgotten about. So even when a place is going all green and trying to do a lot of good things for the environment, they may still be just innately doing, uh, putting things in the environment that, uh, may not be desired. So this is an interesting way to do it. And I would like to see it happen other places if it's actually something beyond alcohol, if it's something that is viable. Yeah, I think it'd be pretty cool to see it in, um, on different types of uh, food food plants that would be able to harness this type of energy to do to make something good and maybe think again outside the box and come up with other types of organisms that can use the CO2 to make something else besides omega-3 fatty acids, like, um, you know, come up with a different kind of kind of beneficial uh, product that we can use, um, you know, stuff like that. I, I kind of enjoy thinking about that stuff and how you can, I guess, DIY, reuse everything to just like the Native Americans, they used everything of um, buffalo, right? I mean, yeah. just coming up with ways to use the whole thing, um, the whole process and have basically zero waste um, come out of it. Yeah. And and so. that makes me also think of that musical instrument where the CO2 bubbles were uh, creating digital music. So like maybe even on a small scale, there are ways to do something with that CO2 beyond just trap it in kefir, different things like that for like a carbonation level. I mean, have it be useful in some way, even if it's not like a major uh, product. But as a wrap up to this, I did go to the Superior Ecotech website, which is which are the people that were putting this on. And it does look like it's just a straight up the CO2 and sunlight grow the algae. And then it's the algae themselves that are creating the the oils that then they dry and extract. And then they package and resell it as, uh, or in sell oh, it as, as oil. So okay. it does seem like it's a pretty straightforward thing. It's just the algae that are creating these oils that are extractable. And it just happens to be that uh, this is the form of CO2 that they're doing for this Kickstarter. And I don't know if it's the only way that they do it or if they've done it otherwise. I mean, they kind of have just like a corporate kind of little uh, website, but it's still interesting and everyone should go check it out, even though it's been funded. So just... Uh, get inspired. Someone else needs to do this for, for sauerkraut or something else. 
Yeah, come up with something else besides um besides uh omega or uh, yeah, omega 3 oils. Um but yeah, congratulations to these guys for funding their project in 3 days. That's pretty amazing. They were looking for $10,000 and um they they did it. Yep. Congratulations. It's always nice to see something cool on Kickstarter get funded. And they weren't even asking for that much. I mean, 10,000 was so they must they must legitimately have a decent amount of this going already. So that's good good to see. So other things that were good to see, you were just recently at a strawberry festival of some sort, right? I was. Um two weeks ago. I went down um close to the the Mexico US border. Um there's an organic farm um down there that I've never been to before. Um and it's called Susie's Farm. Um it was in the show um, that Austin, um, the KPBS or the PBS show that he was in when he was talking to the kids about fermented foods and he was wearing the cape. Um, So it was there. That's where I went. They have a huge, huge farm there. And um, every Saturday uh, they have the farm open to the public. And um, right now strawberry season in Southern California or in California in general. And, um, they just opened the their gates up for people to come and help them pick strawberries. And um, while I was there, I saw Austin, and he had a little fermentation fermentation stand to um, pickle green strawberries. So I talked to him for a bit, and he had a lot of people come up um, to his stand and ask questions, uh, like what you know, the general questions of what is fermented food, and oh, I've never thought about using green strawberries in this way. What do they taste like? What do you, what can you use them for? So um, he had a lot of positive feedback from people, and um, some really. Um, really cool ideas on how to use uh, the green strawberries. So the question is, did he have green strawberries there? He did. He said he was luckily did not have to pick them himself because, um, you know, he did have a lot of people come up to his stand. Um, the people at Susie's farm was kind enough to pick the strawberries and kind of, you know, it takes a while to clean them off and to process them, like cutting off the stems and cutting them into smaller pieces. Um, so he didn't have to do that. But, uh, you know, he was there all day and uh, he had brought his own uh, brine and jars and that sort of thing, too. And he also had um, made um, unfermented strawberry chutney um, that he then put into jars, too, and uh, fermented that, that people could take home. Um, So he had a lot of different strawberry ideas and strawberry-related things. Um, but when I was talking to him, he also said that he is hoping to have a fermentation festival in Southern California sometime in the next year. Sweet. So I will be sure to keep everyone up to date about that. But as far as I know of, um, he said it's probably going to be sometime at the, at the beginning of 2015, somewhere in January or February. So, um, you know, people in cold weather in the Midwest mark your calendars for to come out to Southern California where it's nice and warm, um, next, next winter. Oh yeah. And it sounds like this is breaking news. It sounds like, so it's still in the very beginning stages. So, um, very beginning. He, um, he started, a, a, he's, he has a few people interested in that are going to help out. Um, but he, you know, it's just like the beginning stages of setting a date, finding a venue, um, those, those types of things. So, um, I'll be sure to keep everyone updated on, on that. 
on all of that stuff. But it was good seeing him. Um, and he said he had a really great time with Tara on the fermentation on wheels bus. And um, he has some crazy stories. So we'll have to have him back to, to talk about them sometimes. Soon. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. And so then oh, really, though, did you get to try fermented green strawberries? I did. He had some already made. So I, I had them. What do you think? They're really good. They're pretty good. They're really tart. Um, but it just tastes I mean, it's the texture of what you would think of like as a, you know, pickled vegetable, Um, but it's not sweet like what you would associate a strawberry with. I mean, they're bitter because they're green. They haven't converted the bitter acids into the sugars yet. Um, So it was a little different, but I I really did like it. And um, I took some home and just finished fermenting some of it. And uh, we used it. We chopped it up and uh, made some pork on the grill, some like tenderloin, and then we put that on top of it kind of as like a sauce or garnish. So it turned out really great. That sounds wonderful. And so now that it's just beginning to have, I'm just beginning to have my strawberries leaves turn green. So maybe I will soon too have some green strawberries in the next month or so. And uh, I will definitely, it's going to be hard though, because I don't have a huge patch. It's going to be hard to want to sacrifice a few for the the green ones, but Hey, I gotta, gotta, I've got to try it. And I'm also curious to try a little bit of like a hybrid of sorts because you're talking about, it's not sweet at all. And maybe if I wanted some kind of side or uh, seasoning of sorts where it was a little bit sweet, like chopping up a few fresh ones to go along in it. I wonder how that would go well together. Oh, I bet it'd be really good because then you have that like tart, bitter flavor, but also the sweet, the sweetness from the really um, fresh strawberries. Um, I didn't think about doing that when we used the pork because when, cause I had gone also to just to pick strawberries and had, you know, have some for us um, just to eat them. I ended up picking like six pounds by myself. I mean, I just went like hog wild. Um, but I didn't even think about saving any and kind of maybe making a hybrid like that. Um, because now that I'm thinking about it, that probably would have been really good, uh, just to have like that little bit of like sweetness in there that always has, that always tastes good. Oh yeah. And was your back sore after, uh, harvesting six pounds being, or were you, or, okay. So were you, uh, anyone that doesn't harvest strawberries, like, were you like, uh, straddled over leaning down or were you kneeling down on the, on the ground? I was mostly kneeling down. Um, I was, mo- it was mostly kneeling down that they have, um, the beds raised a little, or it's it's not a traditional bed like what you would think of with wood around the side. It was just like a dome of um of dirt, um and then rows in the middle of you know r- deep rows that you would walk through uh, to get to the strawberries. So I didn't have to bend down that far. I'm not I'm not that tall anyway, so it was just easy to crouch down and then pick the strawberries and just kind of shuffle my feet down the row until I had enough. Um, okay. And I also, I also went to a spot where there wasn't really that many people because there, there were a lot of people there, but, um, and a lot of people took their kids. Uh, so I kind of, um, wanted to let them, you know, pick strawberries because a lot of people, I mean, I grew up on a farm and we had strawberries and it, you know, I wanted to go just to have the fresh strawberries, um, not for necessarily the experience, but a lot of people go down there for the experience and to kind of see the farm and, they have chickens down there too, and um, you can take a tour of the farm and all kinds of stuff. So you know that's that's a rarity in Southern California to get that kind of experience and see where your food is coming from. So um, you know that's 
So the, a lot of kids were there and they were having a blast just picking up all kinds of strawberries, the green ones and the ones with the um, worms in them and the smashed ones and all kinds of stuff. They didn't really care. They just thought it was fun picking all of these strawberries. That would be a blast. And I think that the the, the pick your own kind of uh, set up for at least sometimes or those that are set up all that time like that. It's like, it just makes sense because man, might as well like let people have the positive experience of picking strawberries. I just know like working on a, a CSA farm a few years back uh, that it was, you know, strawberry time. And I was only working like once a day uh, and uh, like a half day at that. And so like, but sometimes even just four hours, just picking strawberries the whole time, you know, it's a little, a uh, little wearing, not complaining. It was a great great experience. Great to be outside doing that. But at the same time, it's like, man, I would not want to pick strawberries for an entire season every day, all day. But, uh, yeah. but that's where it makes sense. Let the kids do it. They, they're going to have fun. Um, yeah. And, and they have like a sense of accomplishment and pride in it too. So, I mean, um, but yeah, I think the secret is not just bending over and picking them. Um, but like crouching down and kind of kneeling a little bit, um, kind of helps. Well, you're talking so. of, of kids makes me also think about a uh, listener email that I just received uh, recently, which was in regard to arsenic in rice bran and specifically about uh, nuka pots or making nukazuki, the the rice bran Japanese pickle. And it was interesting because, you know, like I, I generally, I'll, I'll use rice bran and, and I understand arsenic in uh, all rice or most rice, there's arsenic levels. And I guess I just hadn't really put it to the realm of like thinking about rice bran, but this person was specifically thinking about it because they have, uh, they have children that also like to enjoy fermented foods. So the idea of a higher than normal levels of arsenic were a little bit more important for a child maybe. So the, the thing was, is that this, this email was, it's like, okay, are there alternatives to using rice bran? And definitely there is there. You can just use uh, wheat bran or any brand, I guess, oat brand or anything else. I haven't used that, but I've used uh, like a 50, 50 wheat bran and rice bran mix to make nukazuke. And I guess stepping back even further for anyone that's not familiar with uh, nukazuke, it's pretty much a pot that is, or a container of a vessel of some sort where a, uh, a rice bran bed that's kept moist and a few things added to it. Like a lot of times I'll like add a beer or different things to it to jumpstart the process, but then it's stirred every single day. And then that medium eventually builds up some bacteria, lactic acid bacteria that then are used to ferment fresh vegetables. So putting in a carrot or any other kind of vegetable in there, the great thing about it is once that bed is fully mature or more mature after a few weeks to a few months, then those vegetables can ferment in a, in a few days to a few hours um, once it's actually fully mature. So it's a great way to make pickled vegetables that remain maintain a little bit of different cr kind of crispiness. And also it's just, it's like a quick pickle with the full fermentation sourness. And uh, so it tastes really good. But if a person's interested in arsenic, I mean, are you familiar with the whole arsenic uh, issue with rice? No, I've never heard of that before. Um, but I, I'm, I'm looking at um, the news article that you had sent that the, the um, that you had sent to me and I'm reading it or I, when I was reading it, I was just wondering they didn't, unless I neglected to see it, does it, do they mention how much arsenic is harmful to humans? It doesn't necessarily come out and say it. Um, it just says that they found one kilogram um, or one, they found that in one kilogram of brown rice, it contained 0.76 milligrams of arsenic. 
in its to- toxic inorganic form. Um, but how much how, do you, do you know the answer to that question? I don't know if it's six parts per million. I can't remember it off the top of my head. There's uh, there's a lot of more recent research out about the arsenic levels. And I remember the first time I heard about it was on like an NPR show or something like that, where it's like, even it doesn't matter organic, non-organic, because it's not as much about um, the pesticides used on rice. It's more since rice is in beds of water, pretty much that there is so much agricultural runoff from both chicken uh, feces and from uh, arsenic laden pesticides. And so it's just throughout the world, since so much water is used and then runoff and it mixes in and different things that there's just higher than our safe levels of arsenic, which are again in all kinds of foods, vegetables, water, some municipalities even have higher than technically safe levels of arsenic, but it's still uh, used. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's like a threshold that we can, that, you know, we are not supposed to go over um, to keep us healthy and safe. Um, So it just didn't mention what it, what, what that level is just because I wanted to compare it to, um, you know, 0.76 milligrams of arsenic. I'm, I'm sure that's a lot. And I know that's a lot. That's, that's a lot of milligrams. Um, but is, I mean, compared to how, how much is that in reality to what is harmful to humans? Yeah. I don't know how to convert um, that to parts per million. Would you be able to do that quickly? That number? Um, well, parts, parts per million and milligrams are the same. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, well that makes it easier. Yeah. It makes it easy. (laughs) So then what did you say it was? It's 0.76. And you said it was six parts per million is what the limit is. Okay. So that makes, that makes sense. Um, that doesn't really seem like a compared to the six milligrams of arsenic 0.76. Um, Oh wait, six. So no, it must be a point something then. Um, because it is over the limit. And the idea is here, not having those numbers right off the top of my head for this. These are more things that I'm thinking about now, as opposed to like having much to say about it specifically. But with the, with the rice brand, the idea is that, um, it's known that in general, white rice has uh, fewer parts per million of arsenic than, than brown rice. And so in some ways, brown rice is oftentimes over the level and sometimes white rice is under the level of risk per daily consumption. Mm-hmm. And so, so the, so the, I get, I'm assuming the arsenic then is on the outside of the, um, well, I mean, it's the brown rice, the bran part is the outside. So that, that makes sense. I'm sorry. I'm talking out loud now. And exactly. And that's the thing is like, I hadn't really thought about that either too much. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I don't consume too much brown rice, mostly white rice when it is. And so I was okay with the arsenic levels, but then thinking about it, it's like, oh, I have nuka pot and then I'm just using rice bran in it. So some of the questions, because it's more questions at this point than anything. I haven't really looked into it much. Uh, but things that, uh, again, for anyone that's interested in doing uh, Nukazuke and they don't feel comfortable having higher than normal levels of arsenic, not knowing exactly what that's going to do, then just use uh, wheat bran or some other bran. Anything's going to work for that. And uh, there's all kinds of recipes out there for ways to make it. And also, supposedly, Bob's Red Mill rice bran states that it's in it's made or it's grown in California and it does not contain levels of arsenic. And California ha- at least has fewer or less arsenic than in the South, 
the rice that's grown in the south of the United States. But there's arsenic all over the world. I guess Indonesia is one of the places that may not have much. And I don't know if that's just use of pesticides is a little different. Island country possibly having something to do with it, too. But most importantly, I'm just really curious about this at this point. And so like the deep dive I want to take on this in the future is in regard to is the arsenic transferring to the pickles? And if it is transferring to the pickles, well, then wouldn't that mean as long as I'm not feeding too much new rice bran uh, regularly, because it will start, some of the rice bran will fall off uh, or come out with when you're taking out the, the pickles that are, or the vegetables that have been pickled. And so like a little bit of extras added every week, couple weeks, every couple months, depending on how much uh, someone is, is removing. And so like, if I'm not adding too much rice bran, will that uh, initial leaching be in those first few rounds of vegetable ferments? And then will it be then pretty much a moot point and be below the levels? So not being a problem, or if they're not leached into the vegetables, then does it matter either? Does it affect the fermentation process? Does fermentation possibly remove some of that? I'm guessing probably not, but who knows? Maybe it is altered slightly. But if, if it's it's either being leached into the vegetables, which means it's going to be slightly removed, or it is uh, not being leached into the vegetables, which means the vegetables are the only thing that are consumed. The bran itself is not actually consumed. Uh, and most people will rinse off their uh, pickles before they consume them. So it's not like the bran, there's no bran on them. Um so I would feel like either way, it'd be a win-win eventually. Yeah. Well, another good question to put into your to, – to add to your questions is um, do the bacteria or the yeast that are being used for the fermentation, do they take in the arsenic and remove it that way too? Because sometimes um, – I, I don't know this off the top of my head and I would have to do some research, but um, – some yeast and bacteria need certain types of um, organic and inorganic compounds to survive and thrive. And so maybe they can take, maybe they take ingest um, the arsenic and lower the level of arsenic that way. So maybe, you know, in fermented foods, do, is there a difference in the beginning of the fermentation with arsenic versus the end fermentation and where does it go? And that, those types of questions that are related to um, arsenic in that way. And a lot of this will, once I have the chance to really kind of dig into any studies that are out there, it's probably going to be a little still speculation and kind of piecing together because I highly doubt there's much research on arsenic levels in rice bran fermentation. But again, I could be wrong because it is a very popular and traditional thing in Japan. And Japan is another area, large cons uh, consumption of rice. And also arsenic is found in Japanese rice, uh, at least in much of Japanese rice as well. So there is a chance that there could be something. There's also a chance that I wouldn't find those things because they may not be in English, but there's still the chance that, uh, that someone knows some of this stuff. So I'm definitely interested to find out more. But uh, so far... I could not say anything because I've used it and it ferments fine, but arsenic levels being a carcinogen, a slow acting kind of thing. It's not like I can be like, Oh, I've been fermenting with this for such and such amount of time and I'm fine. Uh, because that'd be kind of hard to measure. Um, I guess at, at the end of my life, I could see if it worked out, but I'll try and do some research on this to see if I can find out any more slightly bit more relatively conclusive evidence. Yeah, it's a good point that someone brought up. And I mean, I've never really thought about arsenic and um, in rice bran. Um, I use it occasionally, but not for fermented foods or anything more just as um, 
a bulking agent or just in just in cooking. So um, it'd be I would like to know the answers to some of those questions. So we'll have to follow up on that. Definitely will. And uh, and also I'll look at see even before I get all that kind of answers, I'll try and find out the levels in what levels we're actually talking about are supposedly safe. I There's other articles that list that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to see. Do you have anything else for today? I don't, but I want to hear about how your kitchen remodels going. Oh yeah. Um, it's going, I, well, okay. I, it's going great. It's, it's progressing. I'm doing everything myself though. And, uh, so it does take a little bit longer, um, uh, because I, didn't necessarily know how to do everything. So it's kind of a learning process as I go. And it's just more so than anything, it's not having a kitchen sink more, so, more than anything. It's not having a kitchen sink, but not having an oven means no, uh, no sourdough breads, not being able to, uh, chop vegetables or do anything like that. I still am able to have some fermented foods, but it's nothing that I'm making now, except for yogurt. Yogurt's the only thing that I've been required to keep going. But at the same time, man, Washing mason jars in the one other sink we have being, well, either the bathtub or the bathroom sink isn't the most uh, pleasant way to to wash dishes. I'm assuming it's probably not totally unsanitary. It's not like keep a dirty bathroom, but but either way, it's not necessarily a, a ferment. Not having a kitchen does make fermentation a little bit tougher, and uh, but it. Maybe, maybe, maybe more so I'm, I'm looking at this wrong though, as I'm talking, maybe I just need to take a more traditional approach and, and dig a pit in the backyard and, and not, I mean, they didn't, people didn't always have kitchens. So maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just whining, uh, modern world person. <laughs> well, I think it's an honest, I mean, I think that's a legitimate problem. I mean, even if you weren't making fermented foods, just have not having a kitchen sink or an oven to cook food in is, is it's really difficult um, to sustain the type of life that you're so used to and to all of a sudden not have those things, even though it's for a few days or a week or two. It, you know, you're just so accustomed to having that luxury that it's hard to not have it and you realize how, how happy you are to have it once it comes back. Because we went through a whole kitchen remodel thing a few years ago and I completely understand and feel your pain. It's you it was more of like an afterthought, like, oh, I'm going to make dinner. Oh, shoot, I can't because I don't have an oven. Or, um, oh, shoot, I just made all these dishes dirty and now I have to go to – we would use the bathtub, the bathtub too or the bathroom sink to wash all of them. Or we go in the backyard and use the hose just because um, we, we didn't really have any other – options. Yeah. I, I, so I, I totally feel your pain. I thought about setting up because I mean, I, I totally gutted everything. So like, I just, I thought about setting up a countertop outside with a, like an old sink that we had and just like hooking up a hose to that. So I could even wash dishes in a sink outside, but then it's been kind of cold outside still. So it's been, it's been nice a lot, but it's been kind of up and down. So I haven't done that. But in general, the one thing I am grateful for is I have a little toaster oven. That thing has come in so handy because we do have like a little miniature oven, but uh, not for anything elaborate and we haven't taken out the slow cooker or anything yet. We're not to that level, but if this continues on for long, pretty soon, hopefully we'll be hanging some cabinets, which means then soon enough I'll have countertop and have a sink and everything else back. But if it does stretch out, if run out of time and getting some of these things done, I think we're going to have to, uh, resort to things like a slow cooker and otherwise, because man, I don't really eat out very often and I like to cook a lot. So for me, this is, this is like a, 
a huge change from regular lifestyle. So it, it'll be interesting to see. And it's, you know, like in some ways it's great to have like a new kitchen because, you know, it's like, I'm about to have a cookbook come out. I should have a decent kitchen, not something from the seventies style. That's been like the one thing we haven't remodeled, but on the other hand, it's like, well, I'm about to have a cookbook come out and I don't even, I can't even cook. So it's interesting. Well, just think of the new kitchen, just dream of it and just realize it's all going to be worth it once you're in your new kitchen and you're going to think like, man, that was just a temporary phase of my life where I didn't work. And you you kind of pick up some new techniques on how to do things when you don't have those resources. You think, again, a little outside of the box. So um, I love that. Aspect, definitely. Yes. That is the good yeah. thing. It's like really like, well, for one, I'd never had a question of thinking that I wouldn't be able to survive it. It's like, but it's always nice to see. It's like, oh yeah, I can totally do this. It's like, who needs, who needs a kitchen sink? Who needs an oven? I mean, I can totally make it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll have to tell, send post pictures or something of the before and after once you're done. Yeah. Well, I hope to, with a, a nicer, newer kitchen, I'll start. I'll be totally putting up more uh, YouTube videos on the firm up site and different stuff and, and blog posts with videos too, because you know, it's like, or, or more photos actually in a kitchen as opposed to like a little studio that I have in the basement that I usually take photos on. You know, I can do more uh, step-by-step stuff since it's, I'm, I'm not embarrassed of the kitchen I have. <laughs> well, keep us posted because I love, I love house projects as much as I love fermented food. So this is like two worlds coming together Sweet. in in my mind. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I will. I'll definitely keep you updated. And, um, and uh, if, if anyone is interested in show notes or anything else for this episode, uh, because everyone should definitely check out the Sir Stroming images on the BBC, you can find all of those at firmup.com slash podcast slash 64. And you can also find us on Twitter at FirmUp, on uh, Facebook at FirmUp, or anywhere else at FirmUp. And until next time... Firm up.